0: Let us pray now and ask the Lord to look on his word as we prepare to hear it with favor. Lord Jesus, we come before you now and ask that by your spirit, you would speak to us this morning. Lord, for thousands of years, you have proclaimed the reality of your presence, the truth of your coming. And as people who look forward to your second coming, we ask that you would encourage us with your word that you would convict us with your word, that you would draw us to a deeper and more profound understanding of who you are, that we might grow in our relationship with you, that we might love you more, that we might desire because of our love for you to live in a way which is pleasing to you and which demonstrates to a watching world that we know the king of this world and that we would be ready to proclaim to others the good news concerning Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Please be seated. Or actually, I just told you to be seated, but I'm going to read. Sorry. Please remain standing. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 3. We're going to conclude this chapter today. We're going to begin reading in verse 20. We'll read through verse 35. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one close by you in the pew. Or in the chairs, I asked that you pick one up and turn there with us. Beginning in verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, or to take him by force. For they were saying, he is out of his mind, or literally, a lunatic, crazy. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know what it says in your bulletins, but just for the record, um, our, the sermon title is The Defining Work of Jesus, not plural. So just get rid of that S. It's The Defining Work of Jesus. What I want you to begin to look at here is that Jesus has just had this mountain event take place. We looked at that last week where Jesus goes up on a mountain and he brings the apostles and the disciples there, actually brings his disciples with him and names the 12 who will become his apostles. He names them out. We looked at that last week and the significance of what's happening there, the establishment of a new people. There's a very significant event in redemptive history. We see something incredible going on. The new nation of Israel being established under the lordship of Christ, the king. And so they come down from the mountain back into Capernaum. And what we see happening here then is that the people all begin to gather around him. The great masses return. So much so that Jesus and His disciples cannot even eat. And what we see coming before us then are are two statements, two circumstances which begin to try and define Jesus. And what's interesting is is that these definitions are definitions that people even to this day will sometimes use to describe Jesus. And here's what they are. Jesus' family says He's mad. The scribes come down and say He's bad. But Jesus is saying something else. And we have to begin to look at what is going on here and understand how this is playing out. Now, let me just say something before we get directly into these passages to understand about what the scribes were doing there, because you might wonder, well, why have they come down to Capernaum from Jerusalem? What are they doing there? Well, they're there because during this time, if a city seemed to be going apostate, seemed to be under the control of someone who was demon-possessed, they had to go out and kind of do something like an inquisition. They would go out and check out the teacher. They would go out and check out the synagogues. They would check out the people living in that area. And if they concluded that they were under the authority, if you will, the delusion of a person who was demon-possessed or, or a liar or you know, a swindler of, of truth, then they would declare that city apostate. And it would be seen as outside the pale of orthodox Jewishness. So they're there on a purpose. They're there with a mission. And so we see then a backdrop for why they even make the accusations they make. They're not just making them flippantly. This is the authority structure of Jerusalem coming to challenge Jesus and say, this is a bad, wicked evil man. And so as we begin to look at that, we then have to ask ourselves, who gets to define Jesus? His family? The leaders? Or Jesus himself? What we've already begun to see is is that when demons try to define who Jesus is, he silences them. And what we're going to see here is not only is Jesus going to silence His detractors and the scribes, he's going to silence his family as well. These are sobering verses. They are powerful. And I want us to begin to look at them and unpack them through how Jesus works, how he operates, what he is doing, and how he defines. So the first thing I want us to look at then is to come and look specifically: is how do people define Jesus? Well, I just gave you the scenario that people throughout the ages have said Jesus is mad. He's bad. They've either said he's bad like the scribes, that he is a person who's possessed, or they've said he's bad, that he's a liar, that he really just he was a charlatan who just convinced people to believe stuff through a few magical tricks and convinced them to go following off. Now, the interesting thing is that those scenarios don't always play out today Do they? Because most people today don't necessarily buy the notion that Jesus was insane. Most people today have looked and they figure, you know, Jesus was a historical figure. He wasn't crazy. And and why would we say that? Well, let's take a consideration of the kind of people that Jesus attracted to himself. Jewish people. Now, what did Jewish people hold near and dear to them? They held near and dear to them that they worshiped the one true God. Even the ignorant people knew that. They would not have just followed anybody. So the idea that Jesus was an insane, crazy person, within his own lifetime, and certainly after he was killed, people would have begun to fall away if he was really crazy. I mean, really. Because think about how thoughtful and careful they were about who they would follow. Many people would come up, but there was always just a small group of people, and it always passed away very quickly throughout Israel's history. Why? Because... As a general rule, they didn't fall for that kind of nonsense. That wasn't something they generally went down. And so the idea of Jesus being a bad man and a madman, usually as you look at this from a historical perspective, tends to fall away. Well, it would be nice if everybody would just go, well, of course, he's not mad and he's not bad. He's God. And they'd all worship him. And We have to build so many buildings because there are so many people flocking in to worship God. But we all know that that's not always happening, at least not in the West. And so, there's a category that people have come up with. And in its more academic setting, it's been flourishing under the title of the Jesus Seminar. In its more popularized version, it's the Da Vinci Code. And that is the Jesus who's a good guy. And that people just misunderstood. They made stuff up about him, but he really was a good guy, he was a good teacher. He did some good things. He tried to help people. He tried to bring about social justice. He's the kind of guy we ought to aspire to be like. He's the good Jesus. And that's the lie that people are often being persuaded with these days. That the Jesus of the Bible is not really the real Jesus. But the real Jesus is one who really cares about people, but he didn't rise from the dead. He was killed on the cross, and that was tragic, and that's sad. But that was because mean people who don't want to be nice and kind and generous did that to him. But, of course, we want to be nice and kind and generous people, and so our Jesus is the nice, kind, generous Jesus, a good teacher, and we ought to follow what he says. Now, are there some problems with that? Well, yes, there are. Because the first problem we have with that is is that the testimony that if you pick up any book, like John Stott's, um, John Stott has some books out there, and there are others, and Tim Keller has put some things out recently to discuss these very issues. There are some real problems with that analogy of Jesus being good. And one of them is the fact that the idea that Jesus was good and that he's just been personified as this as this savior of the world is because it was a legend that grew up well most of us know that legends require a period of time to take place in order for them to become true and what they what's most essential for a legend to take place is is that all the people who were there have to die because if there are eyewitnesses there's no way that you're going to snooker the eyewitnesses because you know even if you could get Most of them to buy off on it. There's always that one little group of people who just never want to just go along. And the idea that somehow this could have been personified so quickly after Jesus' death and resurrection. It's nothing that we understand of how people operate, either back then or today. And the fact that Paul wrote so soon after the resurrection and the Gospels were within the lifetime of all the witnesses, it's just completely ridiculous to believe that somehow these people were persuaded of a legend when in fact many of them knew him had walked with him, had talked with him Paul even tells us that 500 witnesses to him could be consulted if they didn't believe what he was saying that Jesus had been raised from the dead So the legend theory kind of falls to the wayside. The second thing that makes this really hard to believe is this. Who writes stories like this? If you're trying to develop a legend or you're you're trying to make things not what they truly are, who writes the kind of things that we see written in the Gospels? In a society where women were not allowed to testify in court, who would write a legend Or make up a story that had women as the key eyewitnesses to the event? Answer is no one. Greeks, Romans, and Jews were all in agreement on the fact that women's testimony could not count in court. So, why in the world would men who were trying to get you to believe something put the truth of it in the mouth of women? It makes no sense. Another thing that might come to mind is this. Jesus' own family, and this is where I really want us to come and look at this whole issue of Jesus being a good man. Jesus' own family is portrayed in such a negative light. His own family doesn't believe in Him. They question Him. They consider Him in the Gospels here to be insane. And so what we're looking at here is something within the own testimony of the Gospel themselves. There seems to be this confrontation with the notion that people want to put up that Jesus was a good man who this big legend called the New Testament has grown up around. And so if it's confronted and if it cannot stand, then we're brought back to where we began. Jesus can't be just a good man. If he's not a madman, if he's not a bad man, then we're left with he must be God. That's who he claimed to be. But of course, it'd be nice if we'd stop there and just say, of course, Jesus is God, and now let's go home. But the reality is that people don't necessarily agree with that. And we see, even within this text here, as we're looking at it, and we see what happened, the scribes and the Pharisees certainly aren't buying into that. Because he's continued to do miracles all around them, and they continue not to believe it. In fact, what they've done is they've come and said, you are someone who is under the influence of the prince of demons. And so the first point we looked at then was how do people define Jesus? The second point I want us to look at is how does Jesus define himself? And let's look here at what Jesus says. After they've said how he's casting out demons... Jesus comes back and he says, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Now, isn't it interesting? And this is just a little side note, but I think it's interesting. They talk about Beelzebul, which is actually what it literally translates as Lord of the flies, which was kind of their way of of poking fun, if you will, at the dark forces instead of. The elves of Baal or, or the, the idea of one who, one who is, is, is under the influence of Baal, the demon of Baal, they've, they've made a pun, or, or, or they've made an insult, rather. They've just basically said he's Lord of the Flies, the Prince of Demons. And that's how Jesus is, is casting him out. But it's interesting because Jesus will have nothing to do with this kind of poking fun or, or, or acting nonchalant about who they're talking about and who they're dealing with. He goes right to the the statement. His name is Satan. And he begins to talk about Satan. He doesn't play charades with the name. He doesn't show an attitude either of fear of Satan or an attitude of flippancy with Satan. He sees him for what he is, an adversary. And he calls him satan now it's interesting too because there's a point of irony going on in this text if you see it because down there in verse 26 it says if satan has risen up against satan against himself and is divided he cannot stand but is coming to an end now the irony here is in that whole thing is is that what jesus is really trying to say to them is if satan has really come to an end why are people still being demon possessed if his power really has been stopped, why are things still happening around us that show that his power has not stopped, that he still is at work, that he still is a force to be reckoned with in this world? But the irony of that passage is, is that Jesus is about to declare his end coming, but not by the means that they think it's coming. And they think it's coming because Satan is basically casting out demons with Satan and Jesus is showing them how ridiculous that is. An enemy which turns on itself cannot stand. Right? We as Americans know this, right? United we stand, divided we fall. That's just common sense. But see, they're so blinded. They're so hard-hearted. They're so determined to not see reality that they are believing things which, to the common sense person, are really ridiculous. But they're committed to saying, he must be casting these demons out by the power of Satan. But Jesus now begins to confront them with the reality of who he is. And realize again, when he begins to say these things, and I'm going to try and help draw this out for you so you you can understand the scenario. When Jesus begins to say the things he's saying, They might not immediately jump off the page at you, but to the scribes who well knew the Old Testament inside out and upside down, they memorized it word for word, syllable for syllable. These were the people who counted how many letters were in each row so to make sure that they had the Old Testament text written perfectly out. We're not talking about a group of unstudied, unlearned people. We're talking about the experts of the experts that Jesus is speaking to and when He begins to talk about the strong man needing to be bound, He begins to lay out an Old Testament scenario that is now coming into reality. The earliest statement of this would be Genesis 3.15. For I will put enmity between you and Him. The woman's seed and your seed, Satan. I will put enmity between them. See, Jesus has already said it's Satan we're talking about here. And He's now drawing them to consider who He really is. The promised one. The mighty warrior of the Old Testament. The warrior figure that Joshua meets before he goes into Jericho. The captain of the Lord's army has now come to planet Earth to set people free from the strong man, from Satan. Now you begin to see how Jesus is defining himself. He's saying, you want to define me in your terms for your purposes, but that's not who I am. And he begins to lay out for them very clearly who he is. If I am the strong man, or if I am the one who's able to beat the strong man, then for you to oppose me is to be opposing God himself for you to declare me to be evil when I actually am the epitome of what is good is to put yourself in a place that's unforgivable. It's to put yourself in a place where you cannot be reached. You are damnable. Now do you see the grace that's being extended when Jesus says who He is? He says, I am the one who's able to bind up the strong man. That's who I am. And all blasphemies can be forgiven except for the one that you're committing right now. And that is to be so hard-hearted that you would call the Spirit of God evil. That you would declare what God is doing as something wicked. That you would be so hard-hearted that you would refuse to believe no matter what was shown to you. Now, this is a very specific sin that's taking place here. And that is with the person of Jesus as they stood right in front of Him. But there's one like it that you can commit today. And that is to refuse to believe. To say that Jesus is mad and bad and declare Him to be irrelevant or indifferent. It is to basically harbor in your hard heart an unwillingness to see who He truly is and who He's revealed Himself to be. You can find yourself outside the pale of His kingdom where the forgiveness that He freely offers is not receivable. Jesus is talking about very serious things. Now, the last thing I want us to look then in this passage is as, we look at, as we've looked at that passage is now to come and say how can Jesus as a result of His work as a result of what we know He's headed towards He's headed towards the cross as a result of that work how does He define us? Can He define us? Can He help us to see ourselves in a different way? I believe that we see in this passage that He can. Look there then at 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, the those in verse 34 is the disciples. Don't think he's talking to this whole massive crowd. He's talking specifically to the twelve. He's just... Inaugurated up on the mountain. When he looks around him, he says, This is my mother and my brothers. He's talking about his, these ones he set around him who are seeking to do the will of God. But all that said, there's some striking things going on here that are challenging to us. One of the things that we see Jesus beginning to do here is he begins to redefine all connections to him. You cannot claim ethnic closeness to Him. You cannot claim familial closeness to Him. You cannot claim national closeness to Him. Do you see what Jesus is doing in this section here? His family now has arrived. They call for Him. He's already confronted the scribes, the leaders of their national cultural heritage, and said, you don't know who I am. But now He does something even more confronting. He begins to define people by their relationship to Him and to God, not by who they are, where they're from, not even by their bloodlines. Now that is both, and this culture was incredibly overwhelming, where everything was done. I'm a Jew, and I'm of this father, and this father, and this house, and this house, and this tribe, circumcised on this... I mean, think about the things that we know of this culture. For Jesus to stand there and say such things was overwhelming but it also is a testimony of great hope why because it means it doesn't matter where you're from or who you are or who your people are what the color of your skin is or what language you speak or how bad you've been or how good you think you've been all are welcome into the family of god if they've been the need to jesus And see, that's where the whole issue of the will of God starts. Is, will you receive Jesus? Will you see Jesus? Because see, doing all the things that the Bible tells you you ought to do is impossible to ever really do if you miss out on that first point. That you bend the knee first to Jesus. See, because Jesus is not merely a good deed doer that you ought to follow. He's the one who exposes us that we're not good deed-doers. Not really. Not if we really compare ourselves to perfection. And see, isn't that the difference between religion and Christianity? Religion wants you to be a good person. If you just try harder and be better, eventually the scales are going to even out and then hopefully they'll tilt and God will say, come on in. Well done, good deed-doer. But that's not at all what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures seem to confront us that we're people who are full of pride. That even as Christians, we struggle. See, because what's happening here really when Jesus binds the strong man is this. How does He bind him? Does Jesus take up a sword? And does He slay His thousands? Or even His ten thousands with the sword? No. Can you imagine... His, Jesus' disciples watched what was taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came. And here He was, the one who was supposed to bind the strong man being bound. The one who was supposed to plunder and ravage the strong man was plundered and ravaged. His clothes being divided. His garments being gambled over. Can you imagine how strong that image would have been for them as to who in the world is this? Why doesn't He take up the sword? Why doesn't He come off that cross and slay these people, these wicked people who deny Him to His face and slander the God of the universe? Because Jesus, by His actions, is beginning to show us something about ourselves. And that is this. That the only way ultimately the strong man can be defeated is that the Savior must die. That the way to life is death. It's not through the sword. It's not through the sword. And you begin to ask yourself, what does Jesus mean when he says those who do the will of God? I'll begin to tell you at least what that begins to look like in his people. When people do you wrong, what's your first instinct? get even how dare you do that to me and maybe you say oh I'm not that kind of person but what if someone does something wrong to one of your family members or to one of your friends see our natural instinct is to pick up a sword But you see, if you start to know who Jesus is, and you begin to see what He has done, and you begin to see the way He's let you into, you begin to really understand the Gospel. That it's not about my performance that I'm getting in. It's about Jesus' performance that I am in. And all of a sudden, you become a person who has power. Instead of clutching for power, you realize the real power is to love people who hate me. Is to esteem people who despise me. But see, you can't do that in yourself because the whole way of the world, the whole way that we're wired is to clutch, is to grasp, is to cling. We are idolaters of the first order. We're afraid. And we want our fears assuaged before we're willing to follow. And Jesus says, you can have nothing to do with Me unless you're willing to follow Me despite your fears when you cling and say, my pride's been wounded, you have nothing to do with the Savior. When you cling and say, I've got to have control, you're saying I have nothing to do with the Savior. Because do you see what Jesus lays before us as one who laid aside control and placed Himself in the hands of the Father? allowed Himself to be bound. And He calls us to follow Him. Not so that we ultimately are taken advantage of or ultimately are undone, but rather, that is the very means the New Testament says that we actually overtake the kingdom of darkness. Right? By love and deeds of mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. That's not just good words from a hymn. It's the truth of the New Testament. If your enemy does horrible things to you, pray for him and do kind things to him and heap onto his head coals. What kind of coals? The kind of coals that burn on him because you keep doing good things to him despite his determination to do evil to you. Do you see the logic that if you begin to know really Jesus, the whole logic of your life begins to change. And you begin to become a person who is enabled to care for people that are nothing like you and who don't like you and who don't care about you and probably if they were left to themselves would want to get rid of you. And yet you're now empowered to go out and care for them and to tend to them and to nourish them and to nurture them. Why? because of what a Savior has done. Because He bound the strong man by laying down His life. He bound the strong man by being bound Himself. He bound the strong man by being nailed to a cross. Not by picking up a sword and raising an army. And that men and women begins to challenge our whole paradigm. Would you be those ones who say, we will follow Jesus. We will lay down our arms. We will stop fighting and biting and clutching and grasping and be people who fall on our knees and say, All to Jesus I surrender. To be people who really say, My Jesus, I love Thee. I know Thou art mine. For Thee all the folly of sin, pride, and a desire for control, and a desire for acceptance. If they'll just accept me. If I could just get control of this little part. If they just quit saying things about me as a a person being bad. If they just stop wounding my pride. All to Jesus. My Jesus, I love Thee. Nothing else can stand in my way. That. Are the, those are the ones who are of Jesus' family. And Jesus bids us come. Three questions as we close. How this morning do you define Jesus? Maybe the more important question is How are you defined today by Jesus? Are you that person who stands outside? who thinks they're right, who thinks they've got it figured out, and yet will find themselves on that last day being told, I have nothing to do with you. Everything you've done is lawless. Today, we have the privilege of saying, Lord Jesus, struggling, failing, falling, but ever pursuing you, I come. And it's to those that Jesus says, enter in. I will bind up your wounds. I will give you peace and rest. I love you so much, I gave my life for you. I am in control of everything. Trust me. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.